0: It's good to see everybody that came out this evening. Thank you for your presence and uh, spend a few minutes tonight studying God's Word. Uh, please open your Bibles to uh, the first chapter of Matthew. We'll be kind of touching some on some verses in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 and referencing some passages from the Old Testament as well. For the next few minutes, it's just a very simple aim that I have, and that is... To show uh, Jesus and God's word in a way that by the time we're finished here that we're more encouraged That we're more enlightened and more more uh, have more faith in Jesus and what he is and what he does for us And um, for those who you know may be young and still fully grasping the whole concept of the gospel And also for those who have been in the church for a long time, 50, 60 years, whatever it may be. hope that we just have a new, fresh uh, uh, vibrance of, of Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. So I want to ch- touch bases on how Jesus changes everything. Everything. He changes things in our life, changes things in uh, uh, perspective that, that a lot of people in the, God, in the world don't know. And we're going to start, of course, in the book of Matthew in verse 1. And it says there, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm going to stop right there. We're going to notice eight points on how Jesus changes everything. And the number one way that, that Jesus changes everything is Jesus redefines history you know the first book of the new testament starts with genealogy that is really not very pleasant to read sometimes it's just redundant when we get into the genealogies and we want to skip over it but there's a a strong significance why it's in there and there's reasons why every single passage in the bible is in there and um, from from the start of the book of matthew which matthew was a disciple of jesus it's showing that all the history is pointing to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament. M- Matthew calls the, the, book, the book that he wrote the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if there's any confusion, we know that Christ is not a last name. Christ means messenger or the anointed one or Messiah, the promised one. Ever since the entrance of sin into the world in the beginning of the Bible, God promised the coming of an anointed one, a Messiah messiah one who would defeat sin and deliver people from sin so in genesis 3 and 15 we remember that where right after sin entered in the world god said to the serpent which was the tempter uh, it says i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and then it talks about one offspring from the woman and said it's he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, there was, there was an immediate prophecy of Jesus. And he would be the one to come, the one who would come to, uh, from the offspring of a woman, and would bruise the, he would bruise the tempter's head. And some translations say, he will crush your head. So the first verse of Matthew, Matthew says that... Basically, the snake crusher has come. Jesus is here. This is what all the Old Testament has been pointing to. Jesus is the offspring of, from the woman, and he has come to conquer sin and Satan. And the rest of the chapter will tell us uh, the miraculous story of how Jesus will be born uniquely from the offspring of woman and not of man. Not from Adam, the first man who was, of course, succumbed to sin. This this man Jesus uh, that we read about, uh, he would not be like us. He would not succumb to sin. He would save us from sin. If we go back, of course, looking still at uh, 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 the first verse in Matthew, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is the offspring from David who who has come to reign as king forever. And we reference back in Samuel uh, 2 Samuel 7, we read that David wanted to build a temple uh, for God, but God told David, no, your son uh, uh, Solomon's going to build that temple. Uh, in that passage, God promised David that his offspring would continue, then one from his line would reign as king forever. If we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now it's obvious that he was uh, uh, referencing Solomon in this, but he was also pointing towards Christ as well, towards Jesus. He'll build a house in God's name, and will establish a throne forever. We read the same thing in in, in uh, the sixteenth verse of 2 Samuel 7, and it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. We read in the the, uh, entirety of the Old Testament over and over again, the promise, that promise being repeated. Also in Isaiah 9, uh, 6 through 7, talks about the prince of peace who would come to sit on the throne of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 tells about a king from the line of David who would, who would bring perfect justice and righteousness into the earth. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 25 tells about a Davidic king who would reign over a new covenant for all nations. And we could keep going over passages and passages and passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that reference that. The point is, That through the Old Testament, God's people were continually looking for a different king. Unlike any other king to come in the line of David. And what Matthew is saying here is that the king has come. Jesus is here. This is the one that you guys have been looking for. Uh, In in Matthew 1.17... Uh, It it says there, you know, as we read these names, it's not actually a comprehensive uh, genealogy in in verse 17 that we read. Uh, Not every descendant in that family tree is included. Uh, In fact, some entire generations have been skipped. So why did Matthew do this? Why did Matthew decide to skip generations um, in here? We read in in, uh, the 17th verse there, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are fourteen generations. So the number fourteen is mentioned three times in this one verse. And, you know, I kinda wondered why? Why would he specifically say fourteen generations? And uh, I kinda started doing some research on this and This this is just interesting to me. It may or may not make any sense to anybody, but it goes all the way back to the Hebrew name of King David. Uh, Going back to a little bit of Hebrew information, um, in the Hebrew language, they have something called Gematria. And Gematria is uh, the Jewish uh, alphabet had specific numbers identified to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. For example, like we have in this slide here, this is the the Hebrew alphabet, and the value under each um, letter, they came up with a number that was identified to each letter of the alphabet. Um, So example, you would have a a number associated with your name. Um, And what happens is the Hebrew name of David Uh, is this here and then you add these numbers together for each letter that number comes out to 14 for whatever it's worth you know i think matthew may may if we want to take it that far again put in a stamp that this is the line of david and jesus is here i thought that was very very interesting to me Um, now we go back one verse Jesus is the son of David, and he's also the son of Abraham. So one more uh, look back at the Old Testament. Remember that we read in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God said to Abraham, uh, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you a great na- your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in, all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if we keep reading in Genesis, verses 15 through 16, where God tells Abraham that he would bring a blessing to all the nations, and the kings would come from his line, it then says in verse uh, uh, 10 of chapter 49, from the line of Judah would come a king who shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now in Matthew one, verses one through two, when it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. So we can see that Jesus is the offspring from Abraham who has come to bless all nations. So what's the point of all the Old Testament history of David? The Bible is making it extremely clear And very clear that nothing is done by accident. Nothing was ever done by accident in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. We just studied this a little bit on last Wednesday evening. Throughout history from the very beginning, everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to a king who would come. Then from the first verse in the New Testament, the Bible is announcing the king has come. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham is here. He is the center of history. And that's really important for us to, to hear because you and I are not the center of history. Our generation that we live in is not the center of history. The United States is not the center of history. Throughout history, billions of people have come, billions of people have gone. Empires have come, empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, presidents, dictators. Rulers have come and gone, and at the center of it all stands one person who has never left, and that is Jesus. He has always been there. So the second thing that Jesus changes is he, Jesus reunites humanity. Jesus redefines history and reunites humanity. Uh, here we have a list of different people, different generations, different backgrounds. Uh, there are men and women, Jews and Gentiles from the upper class Uh, Kings to lower class prostitute, but they all have one thing in common. They all point to Jesus. Okay, so um, let's go over to Matthew 2 and we're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. It says there, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Or was to yes was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. That's a pretty fascinating story when we think about it. Uh, there's There's been some mystery around these guys. And, um, you know, by the way, it never says there was three wise men. Uh, as sometimes is depicted in what we see as nativity scenes. But there was never, it never says that there was three wise men. They also weren't just some uh, crazy stargazers. Um, these were well-respected men with prominent religious and political influence. Their name literally means great ...or powerful ones. Their high position was also evident in the wealth that they brought, of course, with their caravan... ...that they probably likely had beside them as they went. Uh, we learned about, about men like this in Daniel. Um, it's likely that they had been influenced by uh, some Jewish teachings from the Old Testament... ...when the people of Israel had been scattered across the East during the exile. Now, uh, of course, through their studies of the stars, they were drawn from the East to worship the king of Jews, of the Jews... There's Old Testament background, um, uh, uh, but uh, of course, that we don't have time to look at, but nothing is accidental. Uh, back in the book of Numbers, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, had called for Balaam, and, uh, which was a magician or a seer from the east, to come and curse Israel for him. And in that story, Balaam refused to do that for Balaam. And, and instead, he actually blessed Israel. Um, and in his last words uh, Bala, Balaam said this in numbers 24:15 through 17 it says so he took up his oracle and said the utterance of Balaam the son of Beor and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the most high who sees the vision of the almighty who falls down with his eyes wide open i see him but not now i behold him but not near A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So Balaam said, from the people of Israel, a star would come out, a scepter or a king would rise, uh, a a star would announce a king. Then as we, if you continue to read in Numbers 24, you see uh, this king would be a king who would save people of God. So think about, you know, we can think about this in Numbers a well-respected magician, uh, a seer from the East, told about a star and a king that would rise from or would rise among the Jews. And then now in Matthew, a powerful, influential magicians uh, or magi from the East follow a star to see the one who was born king of the Jews. God in this in the whole in- entire Uh, history starts orchestrating everything. He arranges the planets and the stars in the sky to shout to the world that Jesus is here. Our God does that. Jesus is the king to whom all nature points, and he's not just the king of the Jews. There are non-Jewish men from the east. uh, These were non-Jewish men from the east. Uh, So what do they do when they get to see Jesus? Jesus. And in this scene, these uh, uh, magi or these wise men come and they worship a baby. When you think about it, Jesus is just born and they are worshiping a baby because they know that Jesus is the king before whom all nations bow. Jesus has come as king, not just for one type of people, but for all types of people in all nations. You know, as we read this and as we learn more and more about how the Old Testament points to Jesus, uh, there is no denying that it was all purposeful from God. In fact, we almost have to consciously deny the facts in order to disprove the Bible and that it was all pointing to Jesus. So um, we, it, uh, it's just pretty amazing. We know that, that, that Jesus is the King of all nations. Uh, the Lord's church is made up from people from countless nations and we've we've gathered here we've gathered uh, here in Bakersfield and across California the United States and the world not because of our politics are the same not because our, our ethnicities are the same not because our backgrounds are the same but we come because we come we have one king that's the reason why we are all worshiping together. And his name is Jesus, and he reunites humanity. But we're a human race, of course, that is sinful. So what does all this history mean for our lives? And that points us to, uh, gives us to point number three, and that is Jesus gives a fresh start. So back to Matthew chapter 1 uh, in in the first 17 verses, there's a list of names of sinner after sinner after sinner in the line of Jesus' uh, family. And Judah and Tamar in verse 3 had twins by incest. In verse 6, the story of David's adultery with the, with the wife Uriah, from, uh, uh, and then whom Dave, David then murdered. Then we have evil king after evil king who led pe- people into idolatry and tr- immorality. Even resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem and deportation to Babylon. Story after story of people who rebelled against God. And if you think about it, you know, I was looking at this and you think about the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus hated God and were leading others to hate God. Then if we get to verse 18... I might have this wrong here. Yes, verse 18. I've got 17 up there on the screen, but it's wrong. Matthew writes here, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So that word birth there, you may want to underline it, highlight it, circle it. That word in the Greek, the original language of the New New Testament, that word means Genesis. That is the Greek definition of that word. So it's pretty awesome to think uh, about it. You know, the very choice of language that God decided to inspire Matthew about is taking us back to the very beginning uh, when sinful humanity started, started, You know, and he's saying, you know, God is bringing us a new start. This is the new way that we're going to do things because Jesus changes all of that. Jesus is who we are going to rely on. His very name in the Greek version of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua, it means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. Just as God used Joshua in the Old Testament to lead his people into the promised land, so Jesus, or the Lord saves, has come to lead people into eternal life. I want to read the, uh, verse 18 through 21 in the first chapter of Matthew. do not be afraid to take this, to take your Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that, that, uh, that is the reason Jesus came to save us from our sins. It tells us right there in verse. 21. He came to save us from our sins. A lot of people hope that when they stand before God, that they'll go to heaven because of all their good deeds, and they hope that their good deeds are going to weigh out their bad deeds. And that is not biblical. Uh, they hope that they have done enough to over uh, done enough good to overcome their bad. But here's the problem with that whole way of thinking: one sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite separation from God. One sin. No matter how much good we've tried to do, we can't erase that one sin. We've committed so many more sins than than that, of course, every one of us has. We've turned from God's ways to our own ways, our selfish ways, all the time. But the beauty is, is that we don't have to try to overcome bad with good. We are not saved from our sins because we are good enough. We are saved from our sins because Jesus died for our sins and he is gracious enough for us because Jesus has come and he paid the price for all of our sins, not based on anything we can do to earn it. Jesus died on the cross to cover over all of our sins. It's the greatest news that any of us could ever know, ever have. We can be forgiven of all of our sins today before a holy God, not because of the not because we do enough good things, but because we are following Jesus as he commands us to do. To all of us who are guilty of sin, which, which is all of us, he gives us a new identity. And not just that. I mean, think of all the names of the shame associated with some of the stories in the Old Testament. Of sin, of incest, adultery, uh, Rahab the prostitute, even Ruth. Ruth. Uh, was a Moabite from a people known for their sexual immorality. Uh, but Jesus gives a fresh start to all of those who are stained by sin. Every one of us, he gives us new identity and new dignity. And that, that family tree of Jesus is not the straightest family tree. It's pretty crooked when you, when you go back and look at all the history of it. Um, I've always wondered, you know, why, why are the names of such shameful sinners... Included in the line of Jesus. And I think the answer is the same reason that our name is included from Jesus, beyond Jesus. It's told by the grace of God. I mean, God's grace covers a multitude of sins. what We're told. God sent his son to save an undeserving and unlikely people like you and I. I mean, Matthew, uh, uh, the one who's writing this book, was a tax collector that people hated. Because tax collectors were were looked at as people who extorted the public, stole from people, who made a living off ripping off, ripping off the Jewish people. In, in Matthew 9, all the people that Matthew had at his house at the time were, uh, were considered moral reprobates. Um, and, and I think Matthew knows that he's probably the least uh, likely person to be writing a, a, a gospel book. Um, but that's what makes the gospel uh, such an encouragement to all of us the good news that God saves us, not based upon our vain efforts at goodness, but based upon his supernatural gifts of grace. We can have a new identity and new, identity and new dignity in Jesus. Next, Jesus gives us fresh hope. Um, you know, you think about all these stories of sin and shame that we read about uh, often in the Bible and what if that was it what if all those sinful shameful stories and shameful decisions that people made what if that was all there was you know we may have circumstances in our life that we look upon or sins that we may have committed or actions that we may have done that we can feel like there's no way that we're going to get back from this I've made this poor decision and I'm not going to get back from this Maybe we've sinned in a way that could take, uh, uh, you know, that we can think that this sin is going to define my life forever. And if we have ever thought that or thinking that, that's I, I think that's Satan working his way in. We need to be careful of that because Jesus gives us fresh hope that sin does not define our lives. But um, as we read the gospel stories, we'll see uh, story after story of people who have sinned, uh, but when they encounter Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes for these people. All the way to the cross where the thief was dying next to him and asked for forgiveness, Jesus said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Jesus ensures that sin will do not, defi- not define our life, and that's pretty good news. Then there are those are uh, uh, are those of us or, or, or here that suffer as a result of sin. You know, sin causes consequences not only to ourselves but those around us. And uh, it has an impact that we don't consider sometimes when we make those choices. You know, some of us um, here, a lot of us, I would say probably most of us here have family members that are no longer part of the church or worship here because sin and Satan in the world has taken hold of them. Because the devil works so hard to divide the family unit that God has created. And then for those who have family members that aren't here because of the choices that they've made, doesn't that have an effect on us? Doesn't that hurt us? Doesn't their choice affect us? Don't we suffer because of others' choices and other sinful nature? Not just, of course, attendance. Um, it's not what we're talking about. Uh, uh, solely but also because the choices that they make out in the world or, or you know, worldly decisions that may have an effect on somebody you know, we, uh, the choices we make whether we like it or not are having an effect on people around us and we need to understand that before we make a choice suffering is a reality you know, we try to raise our children teaching them raising them uh, by God's standards in the way that God would have us to do and then all of a sudden things get flipped 180 degrees blindsided Completely blindsided. Or someone who we have entrusted and ensured all of our trust into becomes the person who hurts us the most. Or sudden death of a loved one or a family member. You know, of course we get down. Of course we lose heart. But if we have lost heart, understand that Jesus gives us fresh hope. Because he ensures that suffering will not be the end of the story. You know, our, our, We need to understand or mark it down, whatever it takes. Suffering is not the end of anyone's story because we trust in Jesus, the one who had saved us from our sins and came and conquered death itself. With Jesus, suffering will never be the end of our story. With Jesus, even earthly tragedies turns into eternal triumph because Jesus changes everything. That brings us to our fifth point. Jesus' presence will never Leave you alone. In Matthew 1, 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God be with us. That prophecy was given 700 years before Matthew 1, that Jesus is God with us. Uh, it's the astounding truth of Christianity. It, it seems incomprehensible to those who Don't believe it, but those who believe, it is an irresistible truth. There was a story of a group of men in the Middle East who who said to themselves or or to others, they were in a group talking, that that there's no way that God himself could come to this person. God is too great and too glorious to debase himself and become a man like us. And a Christian man replied to him and said, he said, let me ask you a question. In my life, I once met a woman and my heart fell in love with her. And when it came time for me to tell her that I loved her, do you think I got somebody to go and tell her that I loved her for me? Or do you think that I went and told her myself? And of course, the man in the Middle East said, Of course she went. And the Christian man replied, In matters of love, one must go himself and not send somebody else. And that's the point. Our God is so great and so glorious that he has not just sent the prophet, this prophet or that prophet or this person or that person. God has come himself as Jesus because in matters of love, one goes himself. It's pretty amazing when we think about that. The God who spoke the world into into being, who rules and reigns over creation, who knows every star in the sky by name, who tells every ocean wave where to stop, The God around whom multitudes of angels worship and sing and praise and continually, day and night, worship Him, the God whose glory is beyond our imagination, whose holiness is beyond our comprehension, that God came here for us. Jesus is the constant companion that our soul craves, no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens around us, no matter what we may go through, to all who follow Jesus' commandments. We are never alone in the world. You know, Do we ever feel alone? I think all of us at some point have felt alone in our lives, like people don't understand what we're going through, uh, like uh, what we're experiencing. Um, even I've heard it in a description at times, you know, have you ever been in a crowd of people but felt absolutely alone? Well, know that Jesus has come, so that we might never be alone. He will never, ever leave our side if we don't leave His. Number six, Jesus will never lead you astray. In the middle of Matthew 2, we read from a quote from Micah 5, 2 about the promises of a coming Messiah. And um, uh, at the end of Matthew, uh, uh, verse 6, it says, "From, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel that picture of a shepherd is actually not in Micah 5 2 it goes all the way back to Samuel uh, 2nd Samuel 5 2 where God anointed David as king over Israel and God told him you are not just to lead my people you are to shepherd my people you don't just rule over them but you 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 lead them and you shepherd them you care for them you protect them you provide them this is a picture this is Jesus uh, and, and as Jesus will shepherd us as well He's not just going to reign over us. He's going to shepherd us as well. And and, you know, do we ever wonder which direction to take in life? What choice we ought to make? Jesus is the wise shepherd that we need. We need to always go to what Jesus has instructed us to do to make the choices in life. We are never without guidance. And number seven, Jesus' word will never let you down. In the Old Testament quotations... Um, just keep the, the the quotations from the Old Testament in the first couple chapters of Matthew are, are quite a bit. I thought when I started reading it. Um, and in Matthew two fifteen, after Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt and then return, Matthew says that that was not by accident. He says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Just like God had brought deliverance out of Egypt into. Uh, uh, from Egypt in the Old Testament. Jesus coming is coming out of Egypt to bring deliverance in the New Testament. And then we get down uh, into uh, verses 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 2 where he quotes from Jeremiah 31 verses 15 through 17. And his families were uh, weeping because babies were dying in Bethlehem because King Herod uh, made a decree to have all the all the uh, uh, male babies killed because he was afraid of Jesus was going to rise above him. Uh, so, so Herod decided to have all the, the male babies killed. Matthew takes us back to Jeremiah 31 where families were weeping as they were being ripped apart from each other in the deportation to Babylon. In Jeremiah 31, God promises, just as I brought hope, in Jeremiah 31, when I said you have, you'll have a future and this will not be the end, He is now promising, uh, even though you have weeping and are experiencing this, this is all prophetic. The whole point is that God is always faithful to his word. Jesus is the faithful deliverer deliverer our soul desires. And we need to understand that God's word will prove true every single time. Jesus is a picture of that. All these promises that God had made over the hundreds of years are now coming into fulfillment when Jesus comes. The Bible tells us all of God's promises are in Jesus. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. He is the picture of God's faithfulness. That brings us to uh, our eighth point where Jesus' love is worthy of our lives. Jesus is the thing, uh, is all these things we talked about, and and he is worthy of our life. He is worthy of everything that we can give to him. In the rest of the book of Matthew, we can see uh, the question over and over again that, that who is going to believe Jesus? Jesus is living, and he's teaching, and he's performing miracles, and he's seeing who is going to follow me. And we see that religious leaders reject him, Roman rulers reject him, but then a small band of disciples believe that he's worthy of their lives. And Jesus changed their lives. And then through him, he quite literally changed the world through a small band of guys and Jesus. So do we believe that Jesus is the one whose love is worthy of our entire life? Followers of Jesus are not people for whom Jesus is just part of their lives. Us as followers of Jesus are not people who kind of do what they want to do with their lives and and then tack on Jesus on Sundays. Actually, that's not following Jesus, that's actually patronizing Jesus, I think. You know, we have to, is He Lord of our life? Does He determine every decision that we make? Does he change everything in our lives to follow him? Everything. You know, the curse, uh, I wrote this down, uh, the curse of nominal Christianity is people who claim the name of Jesus but have no real love for him or desire to follow him as their life. Followers of Jesus are not people who, for whom Jesus is part of their lives. Followers of Jesus are people in whom Jesus is their life. When we put our trust in Jesus and confess his name and be baptized into his name, then we can be sure that life is yours forever as long as we keep his commandments. No matter what unexpected things come into us in our lives or this week, we can be sure that we are secure in Jesus and his promises as long as we don't leave his side. So how can we not see in the first Just here in the first two chapters of the New Testament that all the Old Testament prophecies pertaining to Jesus uh, as coming as a king. How can we see that those are not fulfilled? You know, as I mentioned before, we would have to make a conscious decision to deny the writings and the prophecies of the Old Testament. It would have to be a mental uh, 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 choice that we make to deny it. So what has Jesus changed in your life? Or a better question, does Jesus change your life? Every day, does he change the way we think, what we do, the decisions we make, everything? Jesus changes everything. Have we surrendered all to him? Is Jesus Lord of our our life or not?